If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Doctors are recommending kids to get the flu shot. Just like eggs aren't just for breakfast anymore. It isn't your grandparents' flu shot. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. It ain't your granddaddy's flu shot. Get your arm up there. Come on. Jump, 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 jump. Let's go. Come on. One, two. Let's get that arm up there. You know, uh, hey, how you doing? Let's get this over first. Uh, good afternoon. It's 309. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. The gang's all here. All right. We certainly know where our, our health care system is at this point. Again, overwhelmed this time from youngsters, kids uh, getting sick, l- low supply of medication to keep fevers down. We're creating the perfect storm here and putting our health care system again through uh, 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 another strain, we'll say, to, to say the least. And, you, you know, we're, we're we're hearing more and more about masking and, and, and should this be done and bringing it back to the schools and such. And I was talking to a doctor yesterday, and I'm not sure that this message is getting out. I'm not sure that we've jumped on this message as much as we are some of the other messages. Uh, and that is vaccination for the kids. And NASI, uh recommending that any child over the age of six months be vaccinated against the flu. Not old people, young people. And if young people were getting vaccinated for the flu, would we be in the scenario that we're in right now? Uh, let's bring in Thomas Tenke, Professor, School of Occupational and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University, and with us now. Thomas, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, thanks, Scott. Good to be with you again. Uh, obviously, we're had another issue here with our healthcare system and the kids being sick and such, and the flu uh, coming back, rebounding after a, a, a global pandemic. Should kids be getting the flu shot? Should we be getting this message out for more kids to be uh, getting this basic flu shot? Yeah, I, I think it's a, a good idea from the perspective that you know we, we've talked previously about. It's about you know when we're thinking about prevention measures, we've got to think about a layer layered effect, and 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 we have multiple layers, and each layer and each measure is is sort of uh, taking a different approach, uh, and and is covering sort of different aspects within the community, and and so uh, you know and and different measures are going to be you know, more effective in certain circumstances and less effective in other circumstances. And so, so you know, definitely if vaccinations are available, they, they should be, you know, top, top, of, top of line as, 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 as one of the measures to be implemented. And then you also look at the other measures that, you know, we're, we're pretty familiar with as now as well. So, so definitely uh, when, whenever vaccination is available, then, then it should be really the, the, you know, the first port of call and, and then you uh, look at the other measures that, that layer on top of that as, as the uh, pro- provide additional pre- uh, precautions. Has this message changed? Because, I, you know, I, I'm a middle-aged guy. Well, maybe a bit older than that now. And, you know, so now I'm debating, do I get it? Do I not get it? And I've started getting it because I'm older. But I don't ever remember the message being for kids to get the flu shot. Is this message different now? Um, you know, with COVID-19, we couldn't wait to get our vaccination. Yet here we have something sitting here, which is, it's nothing new here. And we don't seem to be jumping on this. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I think it gets down to that aspect that, uh, you know, pre-COVID, uh, people just sort of said, you know, had that perspective, oh, well, it's the flu, you know, everyone will get a flu, we'll just, you know, uh, we, we just live with it, you know, some, you know, and, and it was reasonably blasé attitudes in regard to uh, the, the flu shot and and whether or not it was effective or not. And, you know, and there was, there was a lot of sort of myths and, and people's sort of, uh, perspectives on on whether or not you should get it or not. I think you know broadly, you know what we know is that that if you uh, do get the, the vaccination for the flu, you're going to be uh, much much more protected than than if you don't have it. And and that that applies to you know uh, whoever's allowed to have it. What's pretty much the, you know the the the, the uh, you know recommended for across the across the population sector. So so that means that. Uh, you know, yeah, I think we should be thinking about uh, you know uh, as wider age group as possible. Uh, but but definitely, you know, I suppose uh, you know, and when you think about you know who is at risk, again, we're talking either uh, young young children or or the elderly or people who have some sort of an immune deficiency or or other underlying health conditions. So so we're still talking that the same at risk groups. And so then, if if it's available. And it can be available for 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 young children. Then why why not uh, why not have that as a, as a key message and a key key prevention strategy as well? How many kids? What's the vaccination rate for flu for kids under twelve? I mean, I can't imagine it being very high at all. I I, I don't I don't have those that data on me. Uh, but but yeah, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's uh, that that high. And uh, you know, I think you know part of it is that. That I suppose parents are sort of, you know, thinking, well, there's there's these all these other ones that are mandatory uh, that we have to make sure that the kids get so, so you know so they can go to school and 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 be protected against the, the broad range of uh, childhood uh, infections and uh, diseases, and, and so do they want to put their kids through through another one, you know, and another one, you know, every year, and so so I think that that's 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 one of the. The, the, uh, sort of so let me ask you this, Thomas. Let me ask you this, Thomas. Is the attitude between uh, different between a flu shot and a COVID vaccine? Because again, we couldn't wait to get these, and then this is what we needed because it was crippling the health system. People were dying. Here we have the flu crippling the health system. Kids are dying. Yet we don't seem to be the least, least bit interested in vaccinating our kids for the flu. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that uh, you know that this the, from a logic and a rationale perspective that you know the same same logic and rationale apply to to COVID and, and to the flu and and we know that you know we we're going to have both of them uh, you know with us for for you know indefinitely now so so we have to be uh, thinking thinking about that and 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 I think it's good to to bring this onto the agenda for for discussion. Last thing I want to ask you, Thomas, we've only got uh, about a minute left or so, less than that. Um, uh, immunity down because we have been masked for so long. Well, like, y- y- I suppose yes and yes and no from the perspective, yes, because we, we haven't been exposed to a range of uh, range of uh, you know, viruses and, and uh, other other things that will we'll be, you know, prodding in and uh, prodding our immune system it doesn't mean that our immune system is is less effective it just means right. that we you know we, we we just haven't been there uh we haven't had that exposure but but we we're obviously getting that exposure now 
All right, Thomas Tenkate with us, Professor of School of Occupational and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University. Maybe think of getting the kids the shot for flu. Thomas, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Thanks very much. Hamilton Wentworth District School Board has a temporary masking policy on the horizon. To talk more about all of this, Don Danko is with us, Chair Hamilton Wentworth District School Board, and is with us now. Don, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, thank you for having me. All right, this is a pretty sensitive issue here, Don. I know there's been lots of debate about this. What is the policy? What is the objective here? What are you trying to do? The trustees passed the motion to have a temporary uh, universal masking requirement for indoors in HWDSP schools, but with an unrestricted option to opt out. And so this is not a mandate, but what we're doing is sort of setting the standard or setting the expectations that for the next few weeks, for a temporary period of time, while we see spikes in respiratory illnesses that are really impacting our pediatric hospitals, you know, we've heard about canceled procedures, delays, we're well over capacity. If we can do that a little bit to increase masking schools along with other health and safety measures, um, we, we believe that we can reduce the risk for our most vulnerable students and staff. And what are the allowances to opt out? How do you do that? Uh, at this point, we're just waiting to get confirmation from staff for that process, but essentially it's unrestricted uh, ability to opt out. Um, the hope is that with people having to make a conscious decision about whether to wear a mask or not wear a mask, as opposed to um, the previous recommendations, you know, masks were strongly recommended indoors, was the messaging shared out, but there was no real uh, clear uh, decision-making needed to be made by, by families or students. Um, basically, it, it's unrestricted, so we're not looking for exemptions or a procedure, but staff are going to confirm um, how families can opt out or how students can opt out, and we want to, you know, reduce barriers and not make that burdensome on staff or on families. So obviously, this has been recommended by you know by by school boards and such uh, such as yours. Um, so I'm presuming that those that want to can and and do. What's the difference between what you're asking now and what you're asking before? Uh, because you, I, I think you've always recommended them indoors. No. Well, we went through a shift in in how we think about masking, and that's based on public health advice, right? So we've gone from, you know, wear a mask to protect yourself and others. Then we shifted to, um, you know, lower rates of illness where they said, you know, wear a mask if you're sick and you have to leave your house or if you're recovering from an illness. And so it's shifting the thinking back to can you wear a mask to protect yourself, but really to protect others? Because we know that masks are not perfect. We know that you can wear a mask and if there's it doesn't fit perfectly or it's a lower quality mask, you don't have perfect protection. It doesn't eliminate your risk of illness. But if you're sneezing or coughing or talking loudly and producing droplets, it can reduce the risk of spread for others. And mm-hmm. so it's really looking at, um, you know, how can we how can we think about those who are vulnerable if you were seeing some really serious illnesses and hospitalizations in this moment in time, um, how can we bring awareness to the fact that you can take this temporary measure to help protect yourself, but really others. Uh, and when does this go into effect? Do we know yet? So staff are working through the details, and families can expect communication this week, um, possibly in, in the next two days. So I would expect that, uh, you know, in the meantime, we are encouraging masks indoors just as Hamilton Public Health and the Chief Medical Officer of Health of Ontario have done for a number of weeks now. Um, so we're, we're providing masks, we're making them available, um, but this promotion and talking about this 
universal masking policy or requirement and the ability to opt out uh, will likely start um, for the, the beginning of next week. So could it be as easy, Don, as, you know, some kids saying, I- I'm sorry, I don't want to wear one. And then that's it. OK, respect that, blah, 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 and move on. And and, and again, I, I understand what I think what, what you're trying to do here is, you know, you maybe should be wearing a mask here. We're very concerned about, uh, you know, the situation in hospitals and, and where we are with flu. But if a person decides, no, it's not for me, that's 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 it. That's the end of the discussion. Yes. And I think what's really important is um, no, you don't know someone else's story, right? Yeah, um, whether yeah. there's someone who is at greater risk or there's someone who uh, cannot wear a mask. We don't know the necessarily reasons for that. Or if they're not choosing to wear a mask, we know people have had challenging experiences over the last two and a half, three years. Yeah. Um, so it's really building a, a positive culture at school where masks are supported, but uh, the choice not to wear a mask is also respected. We really want to avoid the division that we are seeing among adults in society. And uh, we certainly experienced that at a board meeting where we had you know, people very passionate about both sides of this debate. And, and that's part of the reason we landed on something that really is something you can opt out of, but we're really trying to promote, um, can you do this for a short period of time? to help our community get through this this uh, spike in illness. So you're promoting it, but you can opt out if you wish. Um, Correct. And, and what has the response been? Because to me, that seems quite reasonable. <laughs> it's interesting. I think for people who uh, are very have very strong feelings about masks, not masks, often that relates to their feelings about vaccinations as well, um, you know, we do get uh, some negative responses, but also really positive thank yous. Um, my child, I'm worried about sending them to school. They've been wearing a mask, but, you know, they may have some, some additional risk factors. And thank you for, for doing what you can to increase masking and other health and safety measures so that I can feel comfortable sending them to school. So we're, we're hearing from both sides. And I hope that the messaging uh, that we're sharing out helps people understand that this is meant to be supportive, non-punitive, and, and really honoring different people's choices, but, but trying to encourage people to be aware of why masking is beneficial right now. Yeah, good luck dealing with the extremes on either side of this one. Um, one thing that's coming up in the last couple of days, I'm hearing more and more of, obviously terrible news in British Columbia, six kids have passed away from the flu. Um, what about flu shots? I mean, we were all over vaccines. We couldn't wait to get this, our group to be called, blah, 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 blah. And I've had doctor after doctor on the show saying, and Nasi says, after six months, kids should be getting flu shots. Are we doing enough to get that message out? Well, and that's really the responsibility of public health to get that messaging out, right? Um, mm-hmm. As a school board, we're responsible for education and educating right. people about vaccinations is important, but we need to take our direction from public health. And we've done that all through the pandemic around COVID vaccinations. We've also talked about other ways that we can support vaccinations, whether it's for the flu or COVID or catch-up vaccinations uh, for students that didn't get them the past two years for your standard things. Um, can we support those in schools? So we do have a partnership with public health. We keep working with them and we will be promoting vaccinations, um, you know, based on their recommendation and, and their language. Um, and yeah, it seems to me there's a gap there, um, especially with Nasi saying, um, get them. The kids should have them. But I understand that is quite a debate for the younger kids, whether it's a COVID vaccine or a flu shot. Any idea how long this is going to be in place, Don? 
Well, right now the motion indicates that we will revisit it at our first board meeting in January. So our students will be on their winter break until the second week of January. Um, So when we come back from that break, uh, it will still be in place until we have our board meeting and then we have the opportunity to renew it. Again, we're looking at this as a temporary measure. And part of the reason for that is students told us, if you tell me I have to wear a mask for two weeks, three weeks, I'm willing to do that. But if you say it's indefinite, um, a lot of students mm-hmm. really, really can't buy into that and uh, are, are concerned about that kind of direction. So we need to just be looking at what is the hospitalization data? Like what are we hearing from our pediatric hospitals? What are we seeing for illness in our community? And if it's not necessary, um, the, the, basically the direction would cease to continue. All right, Don, uh, like two seconds left. What's the message to parents in, in short, simple uh, sentence or two? What is the message to parents about the masking policy? Really, it's about thinking about um, how masking can help protect yourself, protect your student, and protect others in this time where we have this uh, spike in illnesses. We want to respect everyone's decision, and uh, please make sure that you're asking questions if you have questions or concerns. All right, Don Tanka with us, Chair, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board, adding clarification to uh, their masking policy. Not mandatory, their masking policy, and uh, <laughs> the the rest is up to you, I guess. We're all responsible. All right, uh, thank you so much, Don. We have talked to Sam Cooper numerous times on the show, national investigative uh, reporter for Global News, author of Willful Blindness, How a Criminal Network of Narcos, Tycoons, and Chinese Communist Party Agents Infiltrated the West on various uh, situations. Now, all of a sudden, we seem to be talking more about all of this, something that Tom has been reporting on for a very long time, whether it's uh, secret police stations, whether it's uh, interference with elections or what have you. Sam Cooper is with us now, national investigator reporter for Global News. Sam, thanks for your time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So, Sam, we've talked about this numerous times, various situations and such. Why do you think this is getting the attention that it is now, whether it is uh, election interference or police stations or what have you? Why are we talking about this so much now? Well, from my side, as you mentioned, in Canada, I've been uh, doing a lot of digging into uh, the Chinese Communist Party's very uh, clandestine, nefarious, and in many cases, criminal operations involving what's called their global united front networks. They're seeking to undermine democracies. And as I've reported, uh, uh, they, they, they use gangs for this activity sometimes. So my recent reporting, obviously, I've struck a nerve with... Uh, people uh, well-placed in Canada's government that have been sharing intelligence with me about very serious election interference, foreign interference, all related to these United Front networks that I've been uh, informing Canadians about for a few years now. And so uh, that, that's where I'm coming at, uh, at it and, and why I, I believe my uh, reporting finally is gaining a lot of traction uh, in Ottawa and with Canadians. But from the the global side, we have this group, Safeguard Defenders, from Spain, human rights group that, through open source records, discovered Chinese uh, uh, state documents from what are called the Ministry of Public Security and its bureaus in China, where these documents openly state that worldwide they have set up uh, foreign stations under the cover of, you know, assisting travelers or or or. people of Chinese ethnicity who may be in other countries that, that China wants to keep touch with. But really, uh, the, the evidence uh, that safeguard defenders and others have come up with this are these are secret illegal police stations 
meant to uh, target and harass people that China essentially is afraid of because they could threaten the Chinese Communist Party. They may be officials who have run away with money and yet have secrets, too. So that, I believe, is why the world is now really paying attention to China's extraterritorial ter- uh, activity. Uh, now, of course, uh, as well as police stations, which we've seen some reports are, are actually operating like out of a convenience store. Uh, some, somehow we thought it might be a little bit more official than that. Um, but now the, the chatter of election interference again. This is something that's been chatted about for a long time. Uh, is this something we can get to the bottom of? Is this something we can can figure out? Well, this is something uh, that I, I want to address your comments about a convenience store. The important thing for your listeners about these police stations, and this is coming from my national security sources, it's more about the networks that may meet in these locations, which could mm. be a convenience store, could be a right. community hall. But my investigations show that Canadian police are concerned that Chinese police officials working undercover, Chinese intelligence officials, and in some cases, organized crime suspects targeting people in Canada. That is just incredibly, it's hard to believe, but this is what the RCMP is chasing. Now on the election interference, we will get to the bottom of this. I'm continuing to dig. I'm continuing to get uh, information. As you know, my initial reports point to uh, funding of a clandestine election interference network. Now this is a network centered in Ontario with at least 11 candidacies believed to be in some ways targeted by the Chinese Communist Party for funding or support. Uh, What's next for me in my investigation is finding, you know, following the money trail and discovering, you know, exactly how can funds that come from China pass through the hands of consulate officials and uh, intermediaries who often are business leaders in Toronto area. How can they get to candidates or into campaigns? That is what is yet to be discovered But there's no one that is disputing that China is involved in foreign and political interference in Canada. uh, All the information that that has come out since my report, we see more from CSIS officials in public hearings in Ottawa, essentially saying the same thing with less sensitive details than my reports. Um, The prime minister said he wasn't aware of any election interference. Um, Did you think the federal government's tone has changed on this or is that just lip service? Has the attitude changed? Well, I I do believe the well, we've we've already seen a concrete change, and that is the public safety minister came came out uh, in a report and said, now uh, the government wants to consult the public about a foreign agent registry. And if you recall, that was the very issue I raised in my first story, that this is something Canada desperately lacks. So there's action right away showing some uh, churn within the government that uh, they're, they're, I say they're acknowledging that they have to at least take that, what is a, a very first step. With regards to, you know, how politicians in Ottawa in the ruling government are responding to my reports, we track the comments very carefully uh, no one is denying that they've been informed of or or the government is reporting on at a high level political and election interference from China. There's been some narrowing of uh, comments that people have not been informed of 11 specific candidates that may have been funded mm. directly from China. And uh, that is that is probably true. CSIS and uh, and other Canadian intelligence uh, agencies will will be very careful about revealing the exact details. But at a high level, certainly 
The government is reporting on this issue and is briefing on this issue. Sam Cooper with us, national investigative reporter for Global News. Make sure you hit Global's website for more on all of this. Author of Willful Blindness, How a Criminal Network of Narcos, Tycoons, and CCP Agents Infiltrated the West. Sam, as always, thanks for the time. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We've, I guess, talked at length over the years uh, about Donald Trump, the former president of the United States. Uh, his company was convicted on tax fraud on Tuesday in a case brought by the Manhattan District Attorney uh, for financial practices, uh, the financial practices of the former U.S. president's businesses. A jury found two corporate entities at the Trump Organization guilty on all 17 counts, including conspiracy charges and falsifying business records. But I'm thinking to myself, you know, when has Donald Trump not been in court? Uh, isn't Donald Trump's life just a perpetual court case that just continues? And that's kind of how he wins. He just keeps getting things tied up in court. Uh, what does this all mean? Let's bring in Jennifer Johnson, Washington correspondent with Global News, and is with us now. Jennifer, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. So what does this mean exactly, Jennifer? Obviously, this is his company's. Does this affect the president, the former president, in any way? Well, like you said, it it is his company. The Trump Organization is his company. And Donald Trump himself was not indicted. Charges were not brought against him. Uh, They were against uh, executives who got luxury cars, apartments, other extravagant perks without paying any taxes on any of them. So the company itself may have to pay upwards of $1.6 million. Um, and certainly the brand's reputation may be damaged, but no charges were brought against the former president. And therefore, you know, he's already called it preposterous and he's just, you know, wiping his hands clean of this one. So is th- this now it for this investigation and that of the Trump organization, or is this just the tip of the iceberg? I think in terms of this story, um, the Trump organization, this is pretty much it. I mean, it's been a long investigation. And as you said, 17 counts and the organization was convicted on all 17 counts. Uh, Is it the end of Trump's legal problems? Absolutely not. Um, Trump certainly is uh, looking at a Department of Justice investigation and possible charges. Some are saying uh, early next year for taking top secret and classified documents to Mar-a-Lago um, and not handing them over when he was requested to do that. The January 6th committee is also making criminal referrals to the do- Department of Justice. Um, and we heard, I think it was yesterday, that the special counsel uh, for the January 6th investigation has issued a number of subpoenas to elected officials in Arizona, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania trying to learn more about conversations that they had with Trump um, in terms of whether or not he tried to force them or convince them to do things to overturn the 2020 elections. So are his legal troubles over? Absolutely hmm. not. But you know, this is, a, as you said in your intro, this is the story of Donald Trump's life. He is always in court. There's always a lawsuit. There's always appeals. Now there's another appeal. He uh, appointed a ton of federal judges, circuit uh, and district judges, while he was president. And so who knows what, what, if anything, will go to trial for Donald Trump himself. 
Um, at what point does he run out of cake to afford this? Because obviously, as we mentioned, it's just a perpetual court case. But at what point or, or is there any sign of this catching up to him there where he'll just run out of ways to defend himself or perhaps the money to do so? Or is that is well, that a bottomless pit considering there's people always contributing money to him? Right. See, it's interesting you say that because the January 6th committee came out with a figure of $250 million that Donald Trump raised for the, quote, stop the seal. But that Mm. money went directly to him as an individual, as a person, and and no lawsuits were filed with that money. So there is conceivably at least $250 million out there that he could use for whatever he wants to use it for, in which case he could fight these things for years and years and years. There are also lawyers out there who will take a Donald Trump case because it's always covered by the press and therefore your name gets out there. So is he going to run out of money? I doubt it. So uh, in regard to, because uh, there's lots of, of rumors of him running again, and again, this is a crystal ball question, but as this stuff continues to mount um, and and whether, you know, he can deflect and, and convince his base it's all a hoax or this, that, or the other, at what point do does the Republican Party just say, you know what, uh, is there not a better guy here? Can we not do better than this? At what point, or is he becoming a liability yet? I mean, I think the midterm elections have proven to the Republican Party that Donald Trump may be a liability for the party at this point. And you've got big wigs like Mitch McConnell, who have grown really tired of the Donald Trump situation. Lindsey Graham um, spoke about it today, saying he certainly didn't help the Republican candidates. So I think there's a growing movement among the Republicans that he is not good for the party going forward. Now, there are still people who will say, you know, I'm going to back Donald Trump. Donald Trump's the face of the Republican Party. Whoever the party's nominee is, we will stand behind. But I think there's a strong current undercurrent of people trying to go in a different direction, not backwards, not looking backwards, but forwards and, and fewer controversies. Um, and it, that might be Ron DeSantis. It could be Glenn Youngkin in, in the governor of Virginia. I don't know who it will be, but there certainly is a, a growing feeling among, you know, Republican leaders that it's time to move in a different direction. Now, he's still very popular, you know, among many you know, John Q. Publics in, in America. Donald Trump is. But mm. you know, we'll see how it plays out. Because I think what you're saying is true, that there is definitely some you know, questions with the big wig Republicans on how much can we take? How many more controversies can we go through? You know, we're not, they're being accused of not being the party of ideas and putting forth plans and putting forth, you know, ways to make America better, uh, how to reduce inflation. Bills aren't Mm. coming out of the Republican party. It's all Trump, Trump, Trump controversy, Herschel Walker controversy, you know, know, Dr. Oz controversy. And so there's there's a lot of discussion on how to get the party back on track. And I'm not sure Donald Trump's the way to go. Jennifer Johnson with us, Washington correspondent with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. Jennifer, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. 
Blackie and the Rodeo Kings, one of Canada's most esteemed music collectives, celebrated celebrating 25 years, the 25th anniversary, and 11 studio albums this year. Man, I remember when this was supposed to be just a one-off, uh, and they will be at uh, at Hamilton's first Ontario concert hall. That's Colin Linden, Tom Wilson, and Stephen Fearing, Blackie and the Rodeo Kings. Joining us now, Tom Wilson, Mohawk author, visual artist, musician, Lee Harvey Osmond, Blackie and the Rodeo Kings, Junk House, and the focus of a new documentary film, Beautiful Scars. Tom Wilson is with us now. Tom, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, I'm doing great. What about you? So far, so good. Uh, how has this been going for you? 25 years you guys have been doing this. It started as a one-off, and you're playing the songs of Willie P. Bennett. Uh, how do you explain this? And, and you're still going strong with this. There's no explaining it. In fact, this tour feels like it's been going on for 25 years, to tell you the truth. <laughs> uh, we've been living on a bus. We've been on the road for uh, a month, almost two months now. And uh, we're in Peterborough tonight. How do I explain that? I, I, I just don't know. We made one record, and I got on a plane and went to make a film movie in Costa Rica and said goodbye to these guys 27 years ago at Grand Avenue Studio in Hamilton. We're a band that has managed to play the great halls of Canada, the Grand Old Opry, Golden Gate Park in San Francisco this year, festival stages all over the U.K., and we've never had a hit on the radio. So I don't have no idea. You know, all these other, all these other lightweight bands, they play all these halls with all these string of hits. We, uh, we decide to do it the hard way. Well, that's hilarious. So uh, obviously, as you said, this was supposed to be a one-off many years ago, and the songs of Willie P. Bennett. How do you assemble an album now? What is the difference between that first one and, and how you write for this band now? Well, you know, we've, uh, we've gone from being boys to, uh, being older boys, I guess. I mean, uh, as, as anybody who's been doing a job all their life, whether it's in, uh, whether it's been, uh, at Stelco or whether it's, uh, in a restaurant, you know, uh, you walk through the door as a young man and, uh, you realize that, uh, 27 years has gone by. I was 36 years old when I joined this band. It wasn't even a band. I just joined the project. Mm. I'm 63 years old now. And, uh, I, I feel more solid about writing music. I feel more solid about writing books and making art than I ever have in my life. So I feel my, like my contributions to Blackie and the Rodeo Kings are, are probably better than they've ever been in my life. And maybe the other guys feel the same way. I've never asked them. (laughs) (laughs) What's it been like for you guys celebrating the 25th, uh, 11th studio album, and this all going on in the midst of a global pandemic? What's it like for you to get back out now? Uh, Well, you know what? We notice, and I mean, I've talked to a lot of my friends who are also on the road. And, um, you know, people are very cautious about stepping back out into the world. And uh, we've noticed that. I mean, we've had we've had sold out shows across this country, you know, and uh, Hamilton, I don't think is going to be one of them, you know, Uh, but it's going to be it's going to be the people who love the music are going to be there and uh, they're welcome to come with masks or oxygen tents you know, or whatever it is they need to make themselves feel comfortable in Hamilton Place. I still call it Hamilton Place because that's how I remember it. I guess it's called yeah, absolutely. Place now. Yeah. 
So what about surprises on this show? Are there going to be guests coming into the show? Is this the is this the last uh, 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 night of the tour? Is this it? Is this it coming no, to a head have, here? Or we have, do you uh, we have, well, well, I mean, counting tonight, we have uh, we have two sold out shows in Peterborough, and then we come to Hamilton on Saturday night, and then we uh, and then so Ottawa. The last bus ride to Ottawa to the National Arts Center. Um, so no, there's going to be surprise. There's going to be surprises for us. I mean, we uh, we're we're bringing friends. We've brought friends that have been important to what we do over the last 25 years. And that's friends that are available. I mean, in London, in Toronto, at Massey Hall, we had Danielle Lanois. Um, here in Hamilton uh, on Saturday uh, and on Sunday in Ottawa, we're going to have Daniel. Uh, we're going to have uh, Colin James and Tara Lightfoot and Serena Ryder who are going to join us. And, I got to tell you that we asked Tara to join this tour. We kind of asked her to join our van. She's kind of in Blackie and the Rodeo Kings now. <laughs> really? She, uh, yeah, she plays, uh, I mean, not officially, but uh, boy, uh, we, we can't even imagine getting on stage without her anymore. She is so talented and she is such a fantastic human being that being in her presence, she is a true Hamilton gal. So, uh, obviously, you've been on the road for a couple of months for this. I know you've got a whole pile of other projects that are in the works or doing this or doing that. What happens after this stint with Blackie and the Rodeo Kings winds up? What's next for you? Other than a rest. That's it. I'm going to lie down. I'm really tired. <laughs> uh, I'm going to lie down. I, uh, next year, I start uh, the first week of January. We workshop, start workshopping uh, a play. That's going to be opening in uh, 2024. Um, uh, start working sh- shopping. We start workshopping that the first week of January at Theater Aquarius. And then I've got to uh, finish writing the second book for Penguin Random House called Blood Memory. And uh, I'm going to, start a, just going to start a recording project with Serena Ryder and my son Thompson. So I've got songs to write for that. I got, I got a full dance card, Scott. Man, do you ever. All right, tell us a bit about Old Glory, uh, inspiration for that, uh, uh, what we can expect from that on, on Saturday. Well, you know, we put a lot of heart into that record, into the writing of that record. And then once again, in, in total Blackie and the Rodeo Kings tradition, you know, with no intent in getting airplay or, uh, or anything fancy like that, we wrote from the heart. We wrote about the uh, the celebration of still being able to play music after all these years. We also wrote about some things that were really important to us. Uh, you know, I mean, we've all experienced this world. I mean, as as guardians of of this art that we're making, it's our job to really uh, try and bring some some joy to people. You know, people have you know we we get beaten down by by uh, Fox News and CNN and Twitter apps and people are yelling at each other, you know? So isn't it kind of great to see a bunch of people singing together? It's a simple thing that, you know, we've taken for granted our entire lives, but live interaction, live music, live theater, you know, uh, these kind of things are important for uh, the human spirit. So hopefully uh, that record, Oh Glory, and this tour has brought uh, has brought some joy and some new possibilities to people who've shown up. 
Tom Wilson with his Mohawk author, visual artist, musician Lee Harvey Osmond, Blackie and the Rodeo Kings, Junk House, and his latest documentary, Beautiful Scars. And, of course, Colin Linden, Tom, and Stephen Fearing uh, at First Ontario Concert Hall coming up on this Saturday, Blackie and the Rodeo Kings. Tom, thanks so much for the time. Enjoy your show tonight, and we'll catch you on, sun- on Saturday. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. We'll talk to you soon. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, uh, boy, you don't need me to tell you this, but Canadians are growing more and more concerned about the state of the economy and the impact it is having on their pocketbooks and uh, trying to keep a roof over their head and their families fed. Uh, the majority now saying they are worried they will not have enough money to feed their families. This as uh, the interest rate. Bank of Canada just raised its interest rate again today by a half a point uh, and uh, obviously, that makes everything just even more exp- uh, expensive. The Ipso poll for Global News found 53% of those surveyed fe- fearful about not having enough food on the table. That's up nine points from just a month ago. Sean Simpson with us, VP of Ipso's Public Affairs, and on the line now. Sean, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thank you. So it's interesting. Inflation has dipped a bit to 6.9% from a high of 8.1%, but it, that doesn't seem to be affecting uh, these polls in any way. In fact, uh, anxiety is, is increasing. Well, the only reason the inflation rate's coming down is because interest rates are going up. Um, hmm. So it, it's, it's, if it's not one thing causing financial hardship, it's another. Uh, and uh, what's really quite remarkable about this poll is is how quickly – Canadians' financial anxieties have risen. You know, our, our, our most recent poll was in, or sorry, previous poll was in October. Now this poll was conducted at the end of November. And just in a span of a month, uh, you know, 52% up seven points are worried they might not have enough money to buy holiday gifts for family. Uh, 42% is up nine points are worried they might lose their job if the economy doesn't improve and we enter a recession. 61% up 13 points say they might not have uh, enough money to be able to fill their gas tanks. So these are really significant increases in a very short period of time. And it really underscores kind of the mounting fears and anxieties that Canadians have over their financial situation. And that what stands out, that's what stands out to you, Sean, is the fact that how it has changed so quickly. And I'm sure with this announcement from the Bank of Canada, that rates are up to 4.25%, another half point today. That only adds to this. Oh, absolutely. And even though, you know, the, the economists are, in a sense, trying to tell a good news story, inflation does appear to be coming down a little bit. They're still talking about the fact that unemployment rates are low. There is a, a growing divergence between macroeconomic indicators and microeconomic realities, because this, the way that, that individual Canadians are experiencing the economy right now, as evidenced by this data, is very negative, uh, and and Canadians are very pessimistic. But that's not exactly the message that we're hearing from economists. So, um, you know, there's a bit of a disconnect there, and and you know, policymakers would do well to fully appreciate the level of anxiety that Canadians have right now over their financial situation. That being some said, some may say anecdotally it seems busy out there. There's more traffic. There's more people using hospitality. There's certainly no slowdown in travel at this point. Or is like you saying, is this is this about to react differently very quickly? Well, I think part of that is the K-shaped recovery again, which we don't see in macroeconomic uh, stats. We've got a, a proportion of the population who actually did quite well over the pandemic, saved money, and is now re-engaging. But then we have the other half of the population 
uh, and uh, for them, uh, things are tighter than they used to be. They have less money uh, in their pockets at the end of the month. And many Canadians are already acting like we are in a recession. Uh, you know, they're changing their, their consumer habits. Uh, they're, they're reducing the amount of money that they're spending on, 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 on um, uh, luxuries uh, because the cost of necessities is going up. And, you know, the thing about uh, economics is that it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If Canadians believe we're in a recession and they start spending less as a result, that is likely to cause a recession. Uh, you were talking about uh, one thing that stood out to you was how quickly this changed. What about young people? It seems that we're hearing more and more from them how they're having a difficult time. Oh, certainly. Uh, younger people uh, are the most concerned about uh, their financial situation of, of all of the groups that we that we study. Uh, for example, they're, they're most likely to, to think they might get in over their head uh, with holiday spending. Uh, which may seem, you know, a little bit more superficial, but if you've got kids at home, that is a real concern. Sixty-seven uh, percent um, are worried they might not have enough money to feed their family. That's fourteen points higher than the national average, and a very, very different experience from what boomers uh, are, are reporting. So, time and time again, we see younger people more concerned. And what's really, uh, you know, sort of upsetting about this is. It's, it's out of the pot into the frying pan for younger people. They were also the group to experience uh, the, the pandemic in the most negative way, both financially and from a mental health perspective. We're now kind of through the pandemic. You know, the jobs that were lost are, have now been re-earned. But there's yet another calamity that they're facing, and it's, it's, it's the high prices uh, and high interest rates. And um, they're experiencing things a lot differently than older generations. Sean Simpson with us, VP of Ipsos Public Affairs. Canadians growing more concerned about the state of the economy and the impact it has on them. And the majority now saying they're worried about having enough money to feed their families. Sean, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. My pleasure. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Lots of chatter in regard to where we are uh, with young people, kids, of course, uh, getting sick with the flu or a respiratory virus that is going around. A tragic story of like six kids in British Columbia that have passed away from the flu. Uh, and of course, overloading our already overloaded healthcare system that is barely uh, holding its own after getting out of a or wherever we are in a global pandemic. Is there enough uh, emphasis being put on getting your kids vaccinated with the flu shot. This is something that seems to be coming up now, but I think it's been recommended for a while. Let's bring in Dr. Isaac Bogosh, staff physician, general internal medicine, infectious diseases, associate professor, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto, and with us now. Doctor, thank you for your time. Hope you're well. My pleasure. Happy to chat, Scott. We're hearing more and more, Doctor, about kids getting flu shots, and it's something that we really haven't heard in the past. You know, I'm an older guy and, you know, just started getting it, thinking, oh, I'm getting older, you know, vulnerable, all that sort of thing. But now there seems to be a real concern, uh, especially what we're seeing in hospitals and such. Should the kids be vaccinated with a flu shot of some sort? Yes, they have. They, they absolutely should. And they should have been for a long time. And, you know, we didn't pre-pandemic. I don't think we talked about this enough. Um, you know, you might hear a public health officer discuss it or there might be a news conference at the beginning of the vaccine campaign saying, you know what, hey, it's a good idea to get your flu shot. But, yeah, it's been known for decades and decades who is most impacted by the flu. It's the oldest, the youngest 
and people with underlying medical conditions. That's who is most impacted by the flu. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now. If you look at the rates of hospitalization for influenza in Canada, it's the highest among the 65 plus crowd and then among the zero to four crowd. That's who gets sick. That's who ends up in hospital. And of course, it's vaccine preventable. The flu shot does a remarkable job in protecting people from either getting the flu. And if you do get the flu, it can certainly mitigate the severity of symptoms that you have. There's lots of comparisons to be drawn here between uh, what we're seeing now with the flu and the global pandemic um, and, and shortages of vaccine. We couldn't wait to get our sleeves rolled up and get in there when our age group was called and get the vaccination. Uh, is this still the best way in this case for the kids to, to, to keep the flu rates low? I mean, should we be as aggressively um, chasing kids for the flu shot as we have in the past with COVID-19 vaccine? Like, this is good. You're going to get a hundred different answers depending on who you ask. For me, at least, we know that, listen, I'm not trying to take away anything from the severity of COVID. COVID, we've obviously been through a terrible or are still going through a terrible pandemic. Estimated, you know, 20 million people or maybe a bit more died of COVID. Uh, like, it's it's been tough. But we know that I'm not saying COVID isn't okay with kids. We know kids can, of mm-hmm. course, be impacted by COVID. But compared to older adults, you know, COVID significantly impacts older adults, especially the over 60 and really the over 80 crowd significantly. Whereas if you look at hospitalization for COVID, for example, in kids, Yes, of course, kids can get sick with COVID. Kids, kids, kids can end up in hospitals just at a much, much, much lower rate than adults, especially older adults. With influenza, the rate of, of hospitalization is about the same for the youngest when you compare them to the oldest. So I, don't, I never like the, you know, this infection is better or worse or worse right. or stronger than the other infection. They're both important infections. But yeah, I mean, there's a ton of flu right now in Ontario and elsewhere in Canada Flu shots are free. They're widely available, and they work. Uh, and it's a, and they're for anyone six months of age and older. So, like, it's a really good idea if parents are listening. Uh, you can help protect yourself and protect your family by getting by getting the flu shot. Not to compare one disease or, or virus to the other, but to to say the way we combat them is exactly the same. Like, I, I'm guessing the immunization rate for kids under 12 getting a flu shot is negligible. It's I can't imagine it being yeah. very high at all. Absolutely. I think it is abysmal. And in fact, in, in general, in a, a regular year, we get about 40 percent of the eligible population with a flu shot, which is pre- which is pretty low. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I don't even think we're close to that at this point in time this year. Uh, and again, we could talk about pandemic fatigue, loss of public trust in public health, you know, people tuning out for a variety of reasons. But at the end of the day, you need dedicated programs to get the flu shots to the people and putting the you know, pop-up vaccine uh, stations in you know, temples, grocery stores, community centers, malls, like really doing everything we can to ensure people have easy access to these vaccines. Why are we seeing not as much interest in the flu shot when we saw everybody so excited about getting vaccinated, uh, vaccinated for COVID-19? I mean, you know, our, our, our vaccination rates were, were phenomenal. How come yeah. less interest now? What, what are your thoughts on that? Honestly, I think, you know, these are, this is pure speculation on my part. And, and um, you know, I think people will study this more formally, but it's probably several things. I think we have seen a loss of public trust in public health over the last few years. In addition to that, I do think pandemic fatigue is real. 
people sometimes might feel the need to just move along. But it's important to recognize that there's a lot of influenza out there. We know influenza can kill about 3,000 Canadians per year. It hospitalizes many, many thousands more. And, and it can impact any age group. It really can. It just disproportionately impacts the oldest and the youngest. But even if you're a, you know, a healthy 30-year-old woman who you know, runs marathons, like, you don't want to get the flu. It's not the sniffles. It's not a cough or a cold. It's, it's like getting hit by a Mack truck. It's, it's absolutely terrible. If you can reduce your risk of getting that, you, I believe most people would want to if they actually knew what the flu actually does. It's, it's a terrible infection. So um, much like um, uh, with COVID-19 and vaccination, is this not one of, and I would guess, the single best way to combat this is to get a flu shot? Is that accurate or is that is that misleading? No, I think that's accurate. I think the best thing people can do is, is get a flu shot. I think that is the best thing people can do. I think, as you pointed out, too, listen, respiratory viruses are respiratory viruses. There's a lot of similarities, even though they're different viruses. And vaccines are extremely helpful, but we can also talk about putting a mask on in an indoor setting. Of course, it's not perfect, but it reduces one's risk of getting an infection, regardless if it's flu, COVID, RSV, or whatever virus is circulating. And it reduces your risk of transmitting to others. And you think about the three Cs, the close, crowded, confined settings where these viruses are more likely to be transmitted. And again, putting on a mask in a grocery store, or, uh, you know, it seems though it seems though, doctor, we're talking more about that than we are about the flu shot. And again, I'm for both. So, like, you know, it seems that it's all about getting people to wear masks again. But we're not talking about a flu shot. I would get the flu shots out there. I mean, it doesn't have to be either or. But like, yeah, there's less focus on the flu shot. We should really bring that up to up to par and and, uh, and get people informed that this is for it's free for people six months of age and older. And it, it's, of course, nothing's perfect, but it, it works pretty, pretty, pretty decently to either prevent the flu or prevent severe symptoms of the flu if someone does get it. Dr. Isaac Bogosh with us, staff physician, general internal medicine, infectious disease associate professor, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto. As always, doctor, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Have a great day. All right. I uh, had the Ipsos uh, research people on a little earlier on. More than half of Canadians now worried about putting food on their table. And uh, on top of that, we have a Bank of Canada announcing today that it's uh, increasing its overnight rate to 4.25%. That's an increase of half a point. Um, the Bank of Canada said that it is continuing its policy of quantitative tightening. Any surprise here? Many thought that it would only go up maybe a a quarter of a point as opposed to a half a point is the end uh, in sight. Uh, should we perhaps pause these for a bit to see how uh, they dig in and what the future fallout is? Let's bring in Michael Veal, Professor Economics, McMaster University, Academic Director, Stats Canada Research Data Centre, and with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I am. hope you are, too. So far, so good. Uh, Michael, your thoughts on the half a point increase? Some were speculating a quarter of a point. Are you, are you surprised it went up a half? Uh, yes, I would have guessed a quarter and then uh, an indication that it would probably go up another quarter uh, next time. Uh, instead, what happened is it went up the full half, uh, but the bank was very clear that it was neutral on whether there would be further increases. So this may mean, and we say may, uh, that there won't be one next time. Is that accurate? Yes, you never can forecast these things because we live in an uncertain world. But I think uh, the the bulk of the probability is that this will be it for a while. Uh, seven increases this year. How significant is that? 
Yeah, it is very significant. I think it's it's kind of interesting that it des- they decided to do it drip by drip rather than in larger bites. Uh, but each time they did it, you may recall, each time they said, but there's more to come, there's more to come. And so uh, markets actually adjusted their interest rates a lot faster than the Bank of Canada did. And so there will be some reaction today's uh, uh, lift because, of course, it was, as you say, a quarter point more than expected. But it probably won't change market rates that much um, as as this kind of settles in. Um, you talked about um, uh, slow uh, increases or half points or whatever, as opposed to a larger bite. What would have been the fallout if had this have been, and what is a larger bite, a full point increase way back when? Would that have changed things? Well, I think in retrospect, the Bank of Canada probably wishes they'd started this process uh, sooner. Yeah. Um, and then it wouldn't have been uh, as serious. But of course, they did not know that Russia was going to invade Ukraine, and they didn't know that there would be as serious supply chain issues as there have been. Uh, and and of course, the other thing that has happened is that even though the pandemic is still with us in some senses, more or less from an economic spending part, point of view, it's almost gone, and that people, their spending came on kind of in a rush um, in uh, early January, February, March this year. Uh, and that also, all those three things were kind of a perfect storm and I just think they didn't anticipate that. And I, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I can't blame them. Uh, we remember during uh, the early part, mid part of this uh, pandemic, many thought that when we did come out of it, it would be like the Roaring Twenties. Uh, could we have seen this coming? Yeah, um, I mean, I when I look back, I mean, I think I was clear that people who were following this understood that there would be a period of inflation uh, afterwards, which would be part of a kind of a uh, roaring part of the economy, if you like. Uh, the economy would roar back, and that normally causes some inflation. Uh, we just didn't think it would be this bad, right, in terms of the inflation. But the economy, in terms of unemployment, is is actually doing pretty well overall. I mean, obviously, the, the aggregate story covers up a lot of individual circumstances with people not doing well. But overall, the economy has been not doing so badly, much better than I would have expected at the start of the pandemic. Uh, but the difficulty is, is that we've had much more inflation than we'd like as well. Uh, your thoughts, and you elaborated on, or you chatted on this, uh, alluded to this, that jobs are up in the sense that unemployment rate is historically low and continues to be historically low. Normally, when we see these sorts of scenarios, there's a lot of people looking for a job. How do you explain the difference here, and, and how does the low unemployment rate affect all of this? So the the economy is running a little bit hot to try to lower the inflation rate. So we will expect that the unemployment rate will go up a little bit. Um, I don't think it's going to be the principal factor in bringing inflation down, but it'll be part of what's what's going to happen. Uh, but it is part of this, this recovery that we've had from the pandemic, which is really, really remarkable, right? You have to remember that right at the beginning of the pandemic, there was this plunge in unemployment, this plunge in output. And in fact, we had negative inflation for a while and very low inflation rates for a while after that. But now the economy is coming back. It's it is it is roaring in some sense. It's just that uh, it's also with its high inflation causing a lot of pain. We hear that it will take time for these rate increases to make their way through the system and to actually see it. Why not just take a pause this time and wait and see where we are, and then maybe jump back on increases next time? Well, to be honest, that would have been my choice had I been in charge. But I can see that they want to. Uh, cut the inflation rate. They want to show that they're doing it. I think that we're very likely to see 
easing inflation even as early as the next inflation reading. I mean, we're not prices aren't going to go down, right? It's, but we will not have the same rate of inflation. And one of the things that we have focused on is we focus on this year-over-year -year inflation rate. So what we're doing is we're comparing when we look at say the the November inflation rate, we're comparing to November now in 2021. Well, in between roughly January, February, March, partly associated with the Russian invasion, uh, we had a really big burst of inflation. And since then, inflation has not been nearly as serious. And I think we're going to start to see people recognize that uh, as we go into January, February, and March, that maybe maybe the inflation is not something that's going to be uh, quite as critical as it has been in our minds for the last few months, where it's, it's really been uh, highlighted and, and emphasized. When will we see the real results from these series of increases this year, or are we feeling it already? Are we seeing it already? Or is there still more to come, say, a year from now as far as the fallout from this? Yeah, I think we're seeing part of it now. We also have to remember that basically every developed economy in the world has gone through almost exactly the same thing. And so all the other central banks are doing very similar things. And, and that has started to slow the economy. Uh, that's starting to get oil prices down a little bit. There's a few things that are happening that are going to start to, to move. As I, as I say, if we don't get another bad shock, uh, we should start to get lower inflation. So I think we're experiencing it already. Um, I do think that we can't say that all of what the, the good news uh, is that we will not get a really high unemployment rate to do that. But maybe we could have done a little bit better on the monetary policy side. But just as probably monetary policy has been blamed too much for the rise in inflation, probably it'll get credited a little bit too much for the fall in inflation if, if I'm mm -hmm. right and that's what happens. So how does this affect the housing market, Michael? We know that uh, high demand, short supply, it was red hot for a while. Things have greatly slowed down now. What's, what's the fallout going to be with the housing market? Yeah, so housing prices move pretty much uh, the other way is interest rates. So when obviously when interest rates started to go up, that's really hit the housing market. Um, and so we, all these things will, will shake out. As I say, if it turns out we have some stability in interest rates for a while, that should start to impart some stability into the housing market. So, Michael Veal, uh, sorry, yeah. go ahead, finish your thought. No, so I mean, I think I think there's a reasonable expectation that the the most extreme volatility is over. Is this a good time to buy a house? Oh, I mean, it's, it's anybody's guess. I mean, the trouble is, of course, that that again, these unforeseen events, right? The the Russia invasion, other sorts of things, can always happen. Uh, but I would say that we are going to go at a period for the next few months where where you won't have the kind of a panic. Uh, either way, people will say, yeah, housing prices are going to be fairly stable, and that makes it easier, I think, for house buyers because they don't have to be in this situation where they think that the price is going to go up by a lot next week, um, and they also don't have to say, well. Gee, if I just wait longer, it's probably going to go down a lot. I think we're now in a, peri a period of time where, where things will be a bit smoother. Michael Beal with us, Professor of Economics, McMaster University, Academic Director, Statistics Canada Research Data Center. Michael, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Yes, you too. Scott Radley is coming up after the 6 o'clock news, hosting the Scott Radley Show. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Well, I can barely hear you, Scott. I was at the Bulldogs school day game today with 8,000 kids, <laughs> and when they say girls scream, I think my eardrums slammed against each other and then exploded. 
Uh, I and I've talked to the Bulldogs about this. This is one of the best events they do, uh, and what a great idea they've been doing it for years to get the kids not only interested in their team, but to put them all together. It is a zoo, isn't it? It, it uh, there is literally there is. I don't think any place. I'm not, I've never worked at Stelco or Defasco, but I, you know, those places where they wear earplugs all the time or yeah. Those places are not nearly as loud as being in this rink, and and at a pitch. It's amazing what elementary school students the, the the sound they can make, which <laughs> like could bore through diamond. It's a it's just it's unbelievable. Uh, anyway, yeah, it's like being in a concert, man. Like being it, it in a rock is. concert. It is. It's yeah. like one of those Korean K-pop groups just showed up in town, and they all screamed right into your ear when they. So I'm if I'm talking extra loud, I'm not intending to. I'm just b- temporarily deaf. Uh, well, that, now you know what my life's all about. Uh, I, I can't hear either, but I can't blame it on the Bulldogs game. I think I'm just blaming it on age and a virus. But I digress. Uh, so you speaking loudly actually helps me. Thank you very much. We talked about this yesterday. I've had doctors on all day asking about the questions about immunity. Hey, and remember we talked about immunity and does it go down with masks? Yes, yes. Um, doc, uh, Thomas Tenkate, uh, Toronto Metropolitan University. Yes, immunity goes down due to the low exposure to these viruses, but your immune system is still strong. So it's still strong enough to um, uh, to combat, but yes, your immunity is down due to uh, a lower exposure of, of any kind of viruses. But also talking today about uh, the flu shot. Nasi recommending uh, everybody six months over getting flu shot. Here we are bringing masks into school, and I'm all for that. Like, I'm not an anti-masker. I'm not an anti-vaxxer, any of that crap. But uh, again, we've mentioned nothing about getting the flu shot. And this is the one single thing you can do which will have a greatest impact on what we're going through. Just as during a global pandemic, COVID-19 and getting the vaccine kept people out of hospital and kept people from dying, we're seeing the same thing with kids. Are you surprised? We are spending, like, we're talking so much about masking. And again, that's great. But we're not mentioning anything about getting your kids rear end into a office and getting them vaccinated against the flu. This is such an interesting side effect. Uh, There's a lot of side effects, but a side effect of what we've just been going through. Mm -hmm. Because the discussion about whether or not it's safe to vaccinate people, and again, we don't have to get into that whole discussion. People can have their opinions. But it's now seemed to have extended to other vaccines that we, I think, had generally accepted as being safe until now. So, you know, I I don't think many people had looked at the flu vaccine and said, oh, that one's problematic or whatever other vaccines. But now it seems as though there is a segment of the population that we're we're actually backtracking and all vaccines now are being called into question, which seems odd to me. I, 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 I don't necessarily agree, but I get where some of the people are coming from on the COVID vaccine, simply on the point of this was made really fast. We don't really know everything about it yet. Right. All right. We can agree. We can disagree. I can see your point on that one, at least. But flu vaccines or rubella or mumps or whatever else, they've been around in polio. They've been tested forever. Why are we suddenly now throwing them into the same mix as things we'd be worried about? That I don't really get. And again, as with COVID, it's the same with the flu. The vaccination is the single best thing you can do 
to combat yourself against this. We were all in. We couldn't wait to roll up our sleeve when our name was called and our ages were was called to get the COVID-19 vaccine. But we're overcrowding the hospitals again. There's kids dying in British Columbia of the flu, yet nobody's talking about getting the kids vaccinated. And that's the single most important thing we can do for flu or for COVID-19. I also wonder if uh, for better, well, if not for better, for worse, I guess, but if we have reached a kind of vaccine fatigue where people just don't, don't even want to talk yeah. about it anymore. And, be, and not only they, mm-hmm. do they not want to talk about it because they may or may not be concerned, they're just so sick of fighting but about it. But we're talking about masking. We're talking I, I, well, about masking. Yeah, we're but, debating masking. I know, but people are tired of talking about that too. Believe me. I mean, I, you, you want to get into a debate with someone, get start to say, hey, what do you think about masking? And I think a lot of people are at the point where if they say, like, I'm all for masking, let's say. Someone says, I'm all for masking. Do I, I, I don't know that I have the energy to get into a whole argument with someone about yeah. this, so I'm not going to talk <laughs> yeah. about it. We've just, the fatigue has led to a lot of people just saying, whatever. Whatever. I just well, I I've said to the school board, I said to the school board, like, are you guys talking about vaccination? Well, that's not up to us. That's up to the government. Well, so is masking. But you're taking a position on that. So why would you recommend everybody to get vaccinated? Because, again, I think probably a lot of them would look at this and say, do yeah. we really want to venture into the whole yep. vax and start this debate again? I don't know that I have the energy to pursue mm. this. Honestly, I think that's really what it is. I, I would agree. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Have a great show. Thanks again, Scott. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Look, all I'm saying is flu or COVID, just get the vaccine. It makes you feel any better. Imagine it like you're just taking your favorite thing of all time, stick it in your arm so that you could become one with it. For me, after three doses, I am now officially part cheeseburger. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the ring.